Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Are statins a no-brainer, or are they a trillion-dollar long con, the Bernie Madoff of meds? My eldest son did his residency, and soon he'll finish his fellowship at the two world-famous Boston hospitals. And he loves me, of course, and recently insisted that I start taking statins as a no-brainer way to ensure cardiovascular health. Dad, you have a giant investment in me. Might as well enjoy it. Well, he was shell-shocked when I said I took lovastatin back when I weighed 45 pounds more a few years ago, but I've stopped and I'll never again take another statin. You see, I read this really comprehensive book. You want to see it, son? No, dad, it's well beyond debate. I'm going to start soon myself. Now, Kenneth is pushing his mid-30s. He's got a flat belly. He eats and drinks and moves and sleeps, in my estimation, all pretty rightly by any measure. And if not for his daft father, he even stresses out correctly. Little heart disease in the family that we know of, but we bar shops mostly seem to die from Jewish guilt. And it's kind of caused a rift. That was the end of that. I've learned in the last few years to purge my life of all but low glycemic foods. I eat lots more proteins in my peas and my beans and my powders, and I take increasingly, and I'm all about intermittent fasting, so I only eat in a six-hour window, And I now optimize my daily hydration with a hydration coach, believe it or not. There are those people out there. And I get lots of sun soaks with good habit stacking. So after reading a second book by the same author, and you may guess that's today's guest, I'll start intensity training around a track 10 minutes, four times a week. Maybe I'll do burpees 10 minutes, four times a week. I'll start eating even more lower carbs and I'll not decrease my salt. Thank you, Lord. Maybe even I'll meditate to lower stress, even though that's a real stretch for my monkey brain. And I'll add a few other ideas that we're going to talk about today. Maybe today's episode repairs that rift with my son. I'll send it on and I'll let y'all know. Okay, so maybe we have got statins completely wrong in the West. In fact, be prepared to rethink the whole cholesterol hypothesis and meet its new replacement. Only if you trust the facts in biochemistry cardiology, hematology, molecular biology, and I can think of seven or eight more ologies that are all carefully outlined and nicely explained for us laypersons in this, my favorite book of 2022. My new statin equivalent is the authentic gold standard, having lost over 15% of my body weight and kept it off several years with a solid plan. And I have further plans to drop further down to my fighting weight back when I used to train for marathons about 20 years ago, and I should get there by the end of summer. So what's wrong with Western medicine cardiology, our number one killer, uh, besides the standard high-carb American diet that is so god-awful for us? Well, today's guest has written this solid alt-hypothesis that shatters the cholesterol hypothesis like NBA ballers shatter the backboards in a million pieces. 
our guest, won me over with his important new book called The Clot Thickens. What a great title. He gives all the credit to his son. But it's a geek out fest on the deep dive bioscience behind statins and cholesterol. And it's funny, funny, funny. I told him I was mad at him because I had to read this book slowly rather than fly through it like most books. I really wanted this intro to be in my best Scottish accent, but it would be a really bad impression of Scotty on Star Trek, who did a bad impression of a Scot. So let's not insult the dialect and get off to a rough start today. Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is a primary care physician practicing near Manchester, England. He completed his schooling in Aberdeen, Scotland, in the dim and distant past. Can you hear the bagpipes of Colin? He's had a long-standing and deep interest in cardiovascular disease, we'll from now call CBD. What causes it, triggered by the fact that when he was a wee baby white coat, Scotland was the world champion in heart attacks. The reason given why just didn't seem to add up to him. And after 30 years and several deep dive books, he's likely solved what he calls this enduring mystery. And if you're one of the many listeners wedded to the gold standard, that CVD narrative that we all believe, this is your spoiler alert, the rest of this episode. Now, move on to your Joe Rogan and your Tim Ferriss. I warned you. Okay, well, now we're stuck together for a half hour. And if we're lucky, you'll get two half hours with today's guest. Today, we're going to strip away the myths, bury the legends, and tell you and me what to do instead based on evidence and science. Bill Bryson is my favorite author, and he basically invented a new category of book called humor travel, and lately he's been veering over towards history humor, and Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is of that same genre. He's invented what I call healthcare humor, but it's on a very serious topic, the number one killer in the world besides Russian tanks and missiles, CBD. I've long been reading his blog, drmalcolmkendrick.org, which will be in the show notes, and to boot, he has written The Great Cholesterol Con, Doctoring Data, A Statin Nation, and his most recent page turner, The Clot Thickens, as I said. It's again, LOL funny, it's jaw-dropping, and it's like reading a mystery, and it's extremely well-cited like all of his books. This, he promises, is his last book on heart disease. He swears up and down and crosses his heart and hopes to die. Wait a minute, we gotta skip that last part. 30 years of research later, he hopes that the cholesterol hypothesis, which has beautifully served the bigs, but not us, will be toppled this lifetime. Maybe this show will make a tiny difference. Welcome to the show, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid I don't have a very Scottish accent. I can put one on if you want. No, no, you sound fine to me. I can't tell the difference. I'm in South Texas. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Well, that's fine. Uh, my father was English, I hate to say. Okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, you hate to say. Well, any comments before we go to this? Uh, I think that's a fantastic introduction. Um, it, it sort of sets the scene. I suppose I now have to, I now have to live up to this <laughs> fantastic, fantastic prologue and say, well, okay, here it is. I've, I've worked it out. I know what causes heart disease. Look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. <laughs> well, you've been turning the tables in the cardiovascular temple for almost three decades. You have been name called, you've been attacked for so many years. How do you deal with all that? Well, uh, I suppose you're not gonna, don't, don't enter the, you know, don't go in the kitchen if you can't stand the heat. Uh, and, and if you're gonna attack a hypothesis that's supported by virtually the entire uh, medical community and, and, and a huge industry and 
and and and then you're going to have to expect that some people might might be a, a slightly critical of you so um um i, I tend to what i what i works on is i think it was margaret thatcher who who said years ago i said i'm delighted when people attack me personally because it means they've run out of anything else to say um whilst i would welcome attacks of fact and logic and science and stuff this this just doesn't really happen so it tends to be this man is a cholesterol denier he's a statin denier he's a you know, whatever he's a zealot he's an idiot he's a whatever so it, you know these are not attacks that bother me um i'm sort of prepared for them if somebody came up to me that i respected and said you have got this completely wrong and here are the reasons and here is the evidence i'd say Blimey, you know, oh blimey, that, that's that's something I've got to look at. But this just doesn't happen. All that ever happens is ad hominem attacks. I was asked this morning, there's a paper I co-authored, which looked at the level of LDL that was measured in uh, 16 different studies, um, the only studies that there are that exist. And there was no association between the level of LDL and the rate of cardiovascular disease in all of these studies. And, and it was published in the British Medical Journal Open. Uh, and the criticism was that, uh, that the criticism was three criticisms. Criticism one, we had only looked for studies in English, which is actually just complete nonsense because any large studies are all translated into English. And there may be some out there that are not in English, but when you're talking about this area, it's just not true. The second was we'd only used one database, which was the NIH. PubMed database, which contains 99% of all published journals in, in the world. And, and the, the third criticism was, well, we give people statins and that reduces the risk of heart disease. So we know that LDL causes heart disease. Uh, and that, that, that was it. And, you know, so okay, give me something to get hold on. I can't get hold of, I can't get hold of nonsense. And yet all you hear, all, all that happened around the world was, well, this, this, this article has been criticized by the experts. And, and it's therefore must be wrong because it's been criticized. And this is the sort of nonsense attacks that you have to put up with, which is frustrating, but not personally wounding. I'm gonna take an amateur shot at explaining the thrombogenesis hypothesis, because if a lay person can understand it, that's gonna be 90% of this audience, but we do have plenty of PCPs, primary care providers listening in too. Yeah. Um, before I do that, I wanna know, when did you know you were right on this alt hypothesis? Was there a moment when you went, Ah, of course. Uh, um, maybe about two years ago, I was sitting thinking, because I thought about this and thought about this and turned it inside out and upside down. And I thought, if you use this hypothesis, in fact, it was a very brilliant man, Paul Roche, who was a professor of um, psychiatry in New York, who set up the American Institute for Stress. Um, and he, he, I was in a meeting, we were talking about heart disease. He's a big stress man, I was a big stress man or a strained man, and, and, and I was banging my head against the wall a bit, and he said, what you have to do is you have to move away from looking for causes and look at the process. What's the process that's going on? This was probably six years ago. And I looked at him and thought, what are you talking about? You know? um, and then I went away and thought about it, and I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. What is actually happening to your arteries? What's going on? What are the processes? Which one of them makes sense? Then I spent about years and several years sort of thinking, okay, so how did how would everything fit? What are we looking at? And and I and I sort of suddenly I was sitting one day and I thought, right, someone came to me and said, did you know that uh, that sickle cell disease increases the rate of heart disease by 
50,000%. Um, and I looked at him and went, really? I never heard of that. <laughs> so, there's an awful lot of research out there, which is always my fear that eventually someone will say, have you read these 2,000 papers? Anyway, I thought, well, okay, fine. How does that fit? How does that fit into a hypothesis? And the hypothesis is simply that basically the lining of your arteries is damaged in some way by something. And there are many somethings that can do this damage. Once the damage has happened, then a blood clot forms on the artery wall. This, by the way, never happens in veins or just in arteries. And once that blood clot is formed, it's then repaired. But if the repair is incomplete, a bit of clot is left remaining. This is transformed in what do we call a plaque. And this becomes an area of vulnerability so that more clots can form at that point and the plaque can grow and grow until eventually you have a what they call a, a vulnerable atherosclerotic plaque, which is a, a big gungy thing with a, with a thin top. And the final event will be that that thin top ruptures and that causes the final occlusive, fully occlusive blood clot because the artery at that point is narrowed. And that's when you have a heart attack and, and, and strokes are slightly different because what happens is that the arteries in your neck become 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 thickened with atherosclerotic plaque. And when the blood clot forms on top of that, it has a tendency to break off and travel into your brain, causing a stroke. So it's a slightly different process, but it's essentially the same process. It's just a, a different end point event. So you have three things. You have damage to the artery wall, you have blood clot formation, and you have repair. And those are normal, natural processes. But if you have more damage going on, or you have bigger, more difficult to remove blood clots formed, or your repair systems aren't working properly, then plaques can grow and develop more rapidly. And, and another way of looking at it is, is we have a system of, of damage and repair. So the damage occurs and the repair systems come in and sort it all out. If the damage goes too fast, the repair systems can't sort it out. And, and, and gradually you end up with this vulnerable point of attack. So when you're looking at, at factors that might increase the risk of heart disease, you don't say, here are the 10 factors. What you say is, here we found something like sickle cell disease. How could sickle cell disease cause cardiovascular disease, atherosclerotic plaques? It's got nothing to do with LDL, blood pressure, smoking, any of these things. It's a completely out of the blue sort of slingshot came in. And I thought, right, how does that fit? I said, well, sickle cell disease means that your red blood cells, which are normally like donuts, although they don't have a hole in the middle, but a sort of donut shape without a hole in the middle. They normally squidge and move through your blood vessels without problem, and they're designed, if you like, to be round and, and squidgy. But a sickle cell has got sharp ends to it. It's sickled in its shape, which is like the sickle moon or whatever, or a sickle. And of course, if you've got sharp, pointy red blood cells hammering through your arteries, they're going to be causing mechanical damage to the artery wall. Like they just have to do this. And once they've caused, they're causing this damage. And, and I looked at this, this came to me, and I looked at a case study from a 14-year-old boy who was admitted to hospital with gangrene of his right leg because of his blood supply to his leg was virtually blocked off. And he had calcification, which is a late stage of atherosclerosis. This only happens to 70, 80-year-old. He had all of his major arteries were calcified with atherosclerosis. And, and the people that wrote the paper themselves said, this is due to the mechanical injury caused by the sickled red blood cells. So I thought, well, 
well, this is obviously going to be a cause, isn't it? We have a thing, it's almost like the perfect, it's almost like sandblasting your arteries and, and they respond and you get clots and you get plaques and you get calcification and you get, and his brother, by the way, the five-year-old brother of this 14-year-old that died of a stroke. I mean, the thing with sickle cell disease is severe sickle cell disease. The children used to die age two and three and four. They just did not live for very long. Um, but when they started to do blood transfusions and change the blood over, then, then people lived an awful lot longer. So living into the 30s, 40s, yeah. The average age of death in the 1960s was five, I think. The average age of death with severe sickle cell is now 45, or that sort of order. But, but the, one of the things they're finding is that these people have, have atherosclerosis. They're, they're, they're riddled with it. And so, so you say, well, okay, well, that fits, that fits with the arterial damage hypothesis, the thrombogenic hypothesis. What it does not fit with is the LDL hypothesis, not in any way, shape, or, or form. So it was a point like that. I started thinking it was almost like a game. It's like, find me a risk factor for heart disease, and I will show you that it does one of three things. It damages the artery wall, it causes bigger and more difficult to clear up blood clots, or it interferes with the repair processes. And, and I, I haven't found a contradiction. I looked for contradictions. I looked, for, I looked and looked and looked and looked, and then I couldn't find any. And, and a good scientific hypothesis is, is a good hypothesis. When you try to contradict it and you can't, that's what science is about. You come up with an idea, you do experiments to try and prove it. Disproving is actually what you try to do. And if you can't disprove it, your hypothesis is probably quite good. And so it was when I couldn't find a factor that, that I mean, the only factor that is, is, is broadly promoted, which, which, I, which I couldn't find that causes any of these things is of course LDL low density lipoprotein, what we call bad cholesterol, because it didn't fit <laughs> with the thrombogenic hypothesis at all. And it doesn't. And so therefore, you know, you're, if you if you say the thrombogenic hypothesis is correct, you have to, in a way, discard the low density lipoprotein hypothesis because it hasn't got anything to do with it. Well, let's let's dive into the chemical makeup of a blood clot because you do a lot of that in the book. And it looks like the blood clot is made out of red and white blood cells, LPA, which is a lipoprotein, and platelets. And then there's this thing called fibrin, which is a leftover skeletal remain. But the fibrin sending out these distress signals to attract more of the other four. And the platelets are the symphony conductor putting it all together. This is the formation of a clot, right? So far, we don't have LDL anywhere in that chemistry. Yes. Well, there is one place that, that lit, light, what do you call it? LDL is a lipoprotein lipid and protein sphere. There's many of them as HDL, high density lipoprotein, low density lipoprotein, very low density lipoprotein, intermediate density lipoprotein, lipoprotein A, kind of microns, blah, blah, blah. But one interesting thing is that the fibrin, if you like, blood clots are like those little cells that float around called platelets. They're kind of, as I said, the conductors. They are the, they are the little, um, the little um, things that, that conduct the whole process of blood clotting. They activate, they stick together, they bring red blood cells together, they trigger most of the blood clotting cascade that you've heard of, factor seven, eight, nine, all those things. And the purpose of all those factors when they're brought together is to get small strands of fibrinogen, which is a short protein strand, and they stick them together end to end to create this big, long, sticky strand of fibrin, which wraps the whole clot together. And at which point, almost everything in the blood is dragged into this process. There's very few things in the blood that have no part to play 
in blood clotting. And when you look at red blood cells, I mean, it's just astonishing the complexity. Red blood cells link onto the fibrin, and then they contract down to tighten the fibrin strands down, thus making the clot really tight and strong. And, and, and if you look at it, it's just amazingly complicated. Yeah, but it's exactly like a scab. We've all had a cat and seen a scab develop after blood clotting. That's an internal scab on the endothelial layer on the inside of the, of the artery. Yes, well, that, that, it's not exactly the same because the, the, blood, the scab on your skin just falls off um, because yes. the skin grows up from underneath and pushes it away. Yes. And a lot of these, th these thrombuses that are formed, these scabs that are formed, wash away and are cleaned out. But a lot of them build up kind of like archaeological layers. So they, it's like thin pancakes stacking on top of each other. And that's what's really going to cause the narrowing of the arteries, right? Yes. Well, if you look at the, in the AHA, American Heart Association, did this enormously complicated review of the structure of atherosclerotic plaques. And what they found was around about 40% of them had very distinctive layering. So it's like the tree rings layers, where you could see layer after layer after layer after layer after layer. And the only explanation for that finding would be that one plaque, sorry, one, one clot stuck onto the wall was sort of treated, then another one came on, and another one came on, another one came on. They were all kind of shaved down at the time, but they built this, built this layer. And you can say, well, why aren't they all like that? Well, they're not all like that because a lot of them just start to break down into, into, into gunge, if you like that word is an American word. You just get a sort of gooey core because essentially that structure is lost as the whole thing starts to, to sort of be broken down and attacked by the various processes that are trying to get rid of it. So yes, we can see that this is the case and you know the, the AHA themselves and, and in fact, all the major cardiovascular organizations agree that if you already have a plaque in your artery, that these grow through a, through, a, through a blood clot, a thrombus sticking to it, then being absorbed into the existing plaque, being covered over, and then you have a larger plaque. That's an accepted process. And the accepted process of the final event, which is a heart attack or stroke, is that the clot forms. So, so the mainstream is completely comfortable with the idea that, that, that if you like, if you have three stages, the plaque starts, the plaque grows, the plaque as a final blockage. Stages two and three, they, they're perfectly happy that that's all due to blood clotting. What they will not accept is that the blood clotting starts the process in the first place. And so all that I'm saying in a way is just move back and say, but could a blood clot forming in the artery wall trigger this whole cascade of events to start with? And that, that makes, that fits with the facts. It fits with the rest of the process that we see and, and so it's not really a great stretch, but unfortunately the LDL hypothesis came along and said, no, it's LDL that leaks into artery walls and makes them thicker. And then after that, you can introduce blood clotting if you like, but blood clotting has nothing to do with, with the plaque develops, starting the plaque. So it's not really complicated. I talked with a cardiologist professor who obviously you know, talks about the importance of statins and talks the importance of diet and LDL and very important to go on low salt if you've got hypertension and uh, of course hypertension drugs. You, you dissipate all the, uh, all, you throw that out the window as well, the hypertension hypothesis, we'll call it. Um, can you talk about the importance of salt in a diet? It's almost the precise opposite of what we're told. Oh yeah, well, it is. It's, a, it's another idea. It's one of these ideas that first came out in about the 1950s. 
that if you reduce salt in the diet, the blood pressure drops and this reduces the risk of heart disease. There's a very recent study just come out disproving that again. There's a thing called the nutritional uh, study in America, the Hannies, uh, nutrition, health and something, something, something. Um, and they looked at the salt intake in the US over, over, over decades and they found that, that actually higher, lower salt intake was associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and overall mortality. And, and there's a good reason for this, but I'm not going to go into that because that's pretty complicated. But essentially, salt does raise an in excess or more salt will raise your blood pressure by about, by about on average, looking at the Cochrane collaboration by about two millimeters of mercury, about that, which is, which is essentially a minute difference. Um, you wouldn't even notice that. If, I, if you went to your doctor and said, measure my blood pressure, and then you went the next day and said, measure my blood pressure, the blood pressure would be different by a greater amount than two millimeters of mercury. It would be about 10 or five, or could be up to 20. So this is an, an unmeasurably small difference on an individual level. And yet we're supposed to believe that, that will stop you dying of heart disease. And in fact, the, the, the man, Alderman, um, who was the, the president of the American Hypertension Association, did some studies in the late uh, 20th century where people with heart failure who are most of risk in heart disease, and he, he reduced their, their um, salt intake considerably and, and increased their mortality rate um, by, by a factor of four to five. And he went on a, a, on a, on a, on a crusade after that and sort of lost all of his friends and colleagues by saying, this is nonsense. We should not be advising people to reduce their salt intake because it actually increases their risk of dying. And, and that is it is a fact. Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, this has been a great show. We're going to pick it up again next show, talking about what specifically we should do on top of more salt intake, which is counterintuitive. So thank you for being on the show and we'll talk to you next episode. Tune in to hear what we need to do for our heart health. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, Go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.